ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A special guest from the Sydney Writers' Festival on Conversations today. When Asma Khan was a little girl, her mother would tell her to stand behind her when she cooked and not to come too close to the flame. But Asma has never been very good at doing what she was told. And she really loved to see what was in the pot bubbling away on the stove, to get up close to the aroma of the spices, to feast her eyes on the colour of what was cooking and, with any luck, be offered a spoonful to taste. So her beloved mother, her Amu, would get Asma to hold onto the edge of her sari so that the little girl could stay in the kitchen but be out of harm's way. It was with her family in India that Asma fell in love with eating and the celebration of sharing food. But it wasn't until after she was homesick in England as a young married woman that she actually learned to cook. And with that, she found her calling. Asma is the founder of the celebrated Darjeeling Express restaurant in London. And her new cookbook honours her mother's influence in her kitchen and in her life. It's called Amu, Indian Home Cooking to Nourish Your Soul. Hello, Asma. Welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival. You spent most of your childhood in Kolkata. Tell me what it's like when the first rains of the monsoon hit. It's just the most incredible moment because you feel the earth parched, waiting. And before the rains come, there are the false rain, the dust storms, when you feel it's going to rain and it doesn't rain. But then there is this point when you know this is happening for real. And it's an aroma that I have never, ever come across anywhere else. And the earth embraces the rain. And because the earth is so parched because of endless sunshine, the rain just disappears and it disappears. And as a child, I remember waiting for that puddle. <laughs> so you could go out and run in the puddle. It took a long time. But then when the rains came, it was relentless. It just didn't stop. But that also meant that school was closed and you couldn't <laughs> go out of the house. You were all trapped inside. And my dad didn't go to work. And that was the most exciting thing because he would hum and he would sing the rags of monsoon and rain, watching the rain come down. So it's just beautiful. How did the food that you ate change during monsoon season? We always had masala chai, and this is not to be confused with chai tea that you guys get in other countries. It's not that. It's, this is brewed. Cinnamon is barely there. You can't even taste it. It's all this kind of really dark, you know, strong spices that go in. So there used to be masala chai that was cooked for a while and then lots of pakoras. So deep fried everything from spinach to onions, potatoes, uh, dipped in chutney, samosa, chutney and chai and long stories by my dad. So he's the storyteller in your family, is he? Yes, he's the storyteller. What, what would he talk about? What kind of tales would he tell? He could transport you anywhere. I have never, ever heard anyone speak like him. He spoke of jinns and dragons and fairies and princess, but he made them all come alive. You literally felt they were there next to you. And he loved history, so he read, you know, old texts like Ibn Battuta, and he would talk about, you know, and, and then describe wars and battles. So he would set them up and tell us that this is what happened and this is, these are these great defeats where the general made a mistake. And he explained to us strategy how important it was to think ahead. And the one thing he'd always talk about is that, you know, you lead from behind. So those that were led down by the, by the soldiers either mutiny, you know, had a mutiny. So at a very young age, you learned the philosophy of leadership from the stories that he would tell me. It's only now as an adult at age 53, I still think back of stories that he told me in my difficult times. 
And the most powerful thing he would always tell us, in Calcutta, there was long power cuts, and you know, he would take us out and show us this point when dawn would break. And he used to always say, never, ever is your night endless. I'll never forget that. But he used to show us the breaking in dawn and say, night will always end. It will always end for you. Just look for the light. There are some really wonderful family photographs in this book. And your father is very handsome with the most magnificent moustache. Did he take a lot of care of that moustache? How does that even happen? Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> and as kids, we've always told, do not touch the moustache. <laughs> so do not hang on them, do not pull them. And uh, yeah, so we've, yeah, we respected that a lot. And when my father was forced to, to like, take us out to have ice cream on the street or street food, and he didn't want anyone to recognize him. He's unmistakable. He towers over everybody. He's got hooked thumbs, you know. So my father's way was to hide his mustache. <laughs> so he thought, this is it. Now no one's going to recognize me and no one's going to come and speak to me. Everyone knew who he was. But yeah, so he just thought that was enough, that his mustache Could meant. be his disguise. Yeah, yeah, that was his disguise. As, as I said, Asma, your new book is dedicated to your mum, your Amu. Tell me about her family. How many daughters in, in her family? She was the middle of five daughters, much uh, to my grandmother, my maternal grandmother's heartache, who didn't have a son. Uh, my, I think my mother was a difficult one for her to deal with, and I don't think she was loved by her mother or her father. So she pretty much was left on her own, and I think that was quite hard for, for her. So she was the kind of middle daughter, so... You know, it was all the older two or the younger two. So that I've always felt with my mother. She's too dignified to talk about it. But you sense that in things that she says. Also the way that she treated the three of us so equally. So after the first, you know, emotions. You are the second daughter in, yes. in your family. Yes, I'm the second daughter in my family. And I think my grandmother made her feel that she'd failed. And many people, aunts, Toxic aunts were like, oh, you're going to go like your mother's way. You're going to have five daughters. And made my mother feel that she was not good enough. Uh, I think she was, she was upset when I was born, but that passed very quickly. And I've, I was much loved by Ammo. How do you, from this point in your life, understand that, that profound preferencing of boys over girls in parts of Indian culture? What's at it, what's it its heart, do you think? It's money. Because the thing is that, and in most agrarian societies, the farm is not given to the daughter. The family home is not given to the daughter. And we are always treated as what we call, you know, pariah, as someone else's. So they get us married at a young age, and we leave the family home empty-handed. And so the lamenting when a girl is born is driven by two things. One is that we need to find a suitable boy for her. We need to pay for an extravagant weather. And absolutely gut-wrenchingly that we have to give a dowry, that giving your daughter in marriage is not good enough, that you need to give her gold and you need to give presents to the boy's side of the family. And that's still happening now. So I think that, that the fact that there's nobody to carry on the family name, inherit the property, and then the girl comes with all this thing of honor. I can't understand why honor is only linked to a female in families. I think there are lots of dishonorable boys in many families, but somehow honor, that word is always stuck to us as women. Mm. So although your mother came to embrace the fact of you as a second daughter, you became a real tomboy as a kid. Was that partly being a bit of a boy for her, do you think, or is that just asthma? I've never really been able to put my finger on what it was. I think I was trying to be the son that she didn't have. And then once you start playing cricket and you understand how much fun it is to be out in the sun and you don't have to dress up and talk to horrible aunts, uh, it's very liberating. And then when you are a tomboy, there's very low expectations from you, generally, because people just think you're incapable of anything but playing sports. Uh, yeah, so then I played the part. I just continued to uh, break the rules and do what I wanted. And she smiled and she let me do it. She never, ever tried to stop me or bring me back into the house saying, don't play on the street. And 
I would go and release the birds in my neighbor's house. And she would tell them, I'm going to take them home. I'm going to give her a big lecture and she's going to be punished. She told me, I'm glad you did it. Because I couldn't tolerate it. I couldn't tolerate that but someone had trapped... release the caged birds. Yeah, yeah. I, I still can't. Maybe it's just because I didn't understand what it was, but I felt that this is wrong and it happens to women. We are caged in some ways, not really physically, but we trap ourselves into this thing of being the perfect wife, being the perfect daughter, uh, and very hard being the perfect daughter-in-law in our tradition is quite difficult. And I used to love releasing them. So yeah, I used to get... Uh, she never punished me, ever. Who did the cooking at home when you were growing up? In India, most families have cooks, and my mother would cook quite often. But we had huge numbers of cooks because it was my mother's business. She had a catering business. So we had more cooks than a normal household. And we also tended to have all the kind of big family functions. All the food ended up being cooked in my house because we, ha we made good food. And my mother was very organized. I mean, her other sisters didn't even know how to cook. So my mother was this highly efficient, very driven, super organized person who worked flat out to make every event perfect. So everyone ended up asking her to do the food. So we had like nonstop cooking all the time. But occasionally, uh, my ayah, my nurse, maid, my maid, uh, who raised me and raised Ammu as well, uh, she would cook for me and Ammu always cooked for me. She particularly cooked for me when I got into trouble. What would she make for you when you got into trouble? I've got that recipe in this, in this book. Biryani is normally, I mean, traditionally made for like over 100 people, maybe like thousands. We make it in our big functions. My mother had this very shrunken down version of chicken biryani that she would make when I failed in maths uh, or my brother lost a cricket match or I lost a cricket match. So it was always when there was doom and gloom. Usually it was me always in trouble. Uh, she would make this biryani. She never said anything. I mean, after getting the lecture about how we let everybody in the family down, then there was this biryani and then you knew. Everything's fine. She's forgiven you. You can go to bed and you'll, yeah, you survive, survive that. Out of the three kids, your older sister and your younger brother, who had the best appetite, would you say? I look it still. <laughs> so my, my sister is a year and a half older than me. She looks 10 years younger than me. She's slim, tall, very pretty. And my brother was hugely fussy, hugely fussy. Uh, so, and I would eat everything. I was very, very low slung. I was happy to try everything. I would taste a lot of food in the kitchen. And all the cooks adored me. So they fed me too, and the neighbors' cooks fed me. So I got fed a lot. So you mentioned that your mum had a, a cooking business, a catering business. How unusual was that in the 1970s? Very unusual. My mother never went to college. She was married at 18. She was a grandmother at 32. My sister was married at 18. She had a child. Uh, my mother was at 32, a grandmother. This is normal in my mother's family, in that clan. Every girl got married at 18. And no one did, no one worked, no one had a business. My mother, just incredible that she was this no-nonsense person. No one dared to say anything to her. She was so polite, but incredibly radiant and graceful and beautiful and so sophisticated in the way she dressed. She would come off, you know, she'd be coming back at three in the morning on a truck, sitting on top of the pot with the biryani dekchis, and all the street dogs from three streets down were chasing because she used to be bringing all the bones back for the street dogs. The commotion, everybody, all the lights in the neighborhood would go on. My mother would arrive, 55 dogs barking outside. And she was in this beautiful chiffon sari, dripping diamonds and jewelry. She had bangles and she would just hop off the truck. But no, I know this, that nobody, nobody ever gossiped about her. Hmm. No one spoke about her because you couldn't drag her down. She was big-hearted. She fed everybody. And anyone was unwell, she would go to hospital with food. She would send food to people's homes where there was a bereavement. She did all these incredibly kind things that, you know, you couldn't help but love her. She, and I'm not saying that because she's my mom. Because otherwise, people would have criticized. The fact that she was alone and out late at night with all these male chefs and coming back late at night. The gossip was like, 
you know, inevitable. Even now, if you try to do this in India, people would gossip. But somehow people never could drag my mother down. She what, was great. What sort of boss did you observe her to be? How did she treat the, the people who were working with her in that business? I only realized when I was writing this book, when I sat back in this complete silence with my business in ruins and financially completely destroyed over COVID, I realized that she, I probably learned so much from her. She was very, very fair, very just. And she would do crazy things like any time a man in the slums behind my house left his wife and in, inevitably left daughters because he was going on to go and have a son with someone else. My mother would go into the slum and tell everybody, especially all those men hanging around, that no one touches her. Tomorrow she starts working with me. She's my cook. And even though this woman didn't know how to cook, we used to hate it because she would turn up the next day, this woman, with snotty kids, and, you know, they were just like everywhere. But my mother just did this all the time. I was sure one day we were going to get in trouble that these men who are hovering around, because when you are poor and you have no income, what do you sell? Your body. Mm. This was the problem. And she never even discussed this. Now I just think that even I would hesitate to go into a place where there are men who are aggressive and powerful. They don't want you to come in. They don't want this woman protected because she's money for them. My mom would just hire her. and She's working with our place. She was, as you say, a, a mum by 18, 19, and your sister the same. But what did your mum offer to do for you for your 19th birthday, Asma? Oh, she's, I mean, I, I just think it's incredible because she got me all these gifts, but she also told me all these wonderful things about me. She made me feel so valued. You need that. And for all of you, our mums and grandmums, please do that. You have no idea what a game changer it is when you sit down with your girl and you tell her that you are this and you are the most wonderful thing and I remember this about you. We forget to do this. Were they encouraging you, your mum and dad, to go on to university? No, they were trying to get me married. They were trying to get me married, that's the truth. I only went to university. I was the only girl in that generation of cousins who went to university because... At 18, your marriage is not more normally fixed. I come from a royal family, so they kind of look for another prince. No prince was going to marry me. No frog was going to marry me either. I had like <laughs> nobody wanting to marry me because they just thought I was trouble. And I kind of also didn't fit in with the kind of princess, princess look. So it might have been in my bloodline, but I didn't behave like one. And no mother-in-law wanted me. That was the main thing. And I don't think any boy wanted to marry me either because they just thought, like, you know, she may give us trouble. And I would have. I would have for sure. So I ended up marrying this really sweet academic. Uh, poor guy. I didn't know what he was going for. <laughs> and I'm still married. Uh, it's great. One of the most Google questions about me is that I'm still married. I am married. I'm still married to the same man. <laughs> and he needs to be given a medal at some point for tolerating all my madness. <laughs> So South Asian weddings are, are big affairs. How many people is, is common to turn up? Between two and 5,000. Between two and five. Who does all the cooking for that? <laughs> oh, my God. It's a, it's a production line. It's just incredible. Yeah. There are lots of rituals and traditions associated with each of the steps in those sort of huge wedding events. What did you ask to be cooked for you on your last night at home before you were married? I... I was very aware that this, even though this was not going to be my final meal, but especially in the Eastern culture, this, the wedding changes everything. You change your name, you become someone of another family. And she made this, the round for me, which was, it, the recipe is here in the, in, in the book. But it wasn't just the food that they made for me that day, all our cooks, my mother. It was that she fed me by hand. And I don't remember that, but I've seen other children in the family be fed by hand when they're small. They meet us in the lap and someone feeds them. And I had henna all the way up and my henna wasn't drying. I was starving. Of course, I'm constantly starving. <laughs> so I couldn't eat. And my mother was getting upset because she could see. So she sat and fed me and 
I'm not going to get emotional about this, but it was the kind of emotion that, that, that whole thing of giving me food, I felt like a child. And I knew that was the last day that I was a child because the next day I was going to be a bride. So yeah, it was, it's still, I've been married 30 years, but I still remember that touch as she fed me and that smell of henna, which is very beautiful. Uh, and yeah, so that, that was something that I still remember my last meal at home before I got married. You and your new husband, this lovely, sweet, innocent academic who didn't know what he was getting into, moved to the UK. What role did soap play in your idea of England before you moved there? Yeah, England was Yardley soap. Yardley <laughs> was what I thought every English person bathed in. <laughs> I, I'd heard that Queen Victoria didn't bathe. And then I thought after that, all English people bathe uh, with Yardley soap because there was a shop in Newmarket, which is this big market in Calcutta, and they have this kind of foreign, foreign goods. I'm talking about the 80s. Now, of course, the whole place is full of everything. But in the 80s, there was this glass cabinet, and I didn't have the money to buy the Yardley soap, but I would ask him to give it to me. I'd smell it and tell him to put it back because <laughs> I'm not going to buy it. I was also looking at the same soap, I'm sure, that I saw for 10 years, and nobody ever bought it. <laughs> But the, the, it's because you kept smelling it. Yeah, yeah. but it's just still smell of lavender. And so there's a recipe in this book. It's a, it's a sandesh, which is very Bengali. It's made with uh, curd and, you know, you, it, you've got to kind of really uh, mince it. It's a soft thing. And I made it with lavender, which is, there's no fusion dish in there. This is all very, very family recipes, simple things, complicated things, Duran. But that, I added lavender to it because I suddenly thought, I really want that, the time of innocence. I never thought I'd end up marrying in England. I thought I was going to marry a prince from the palace next door. Prince in the palace next door was hiding on the table, wasn't going to marry me. So I ended up getting married in England. But I used to have this romantic idea that England was a place of Yardley soap. When you arrived in England, how did it compare to, your, to those ideals? Did the streets of England smell like lavender to you, asthma? No. It, I... In the Quran, in the Bible, you always hear this, you know, the description of hell as, you know, fire and everything. No, it's Cambridge in January. The river had frozen. It was freezing. And also, I had never seen trees without leaves. Now, of course, you see every kind of image because of, of the Internet. And there's movies. And, you know, I grew up in a Marxist Bengal where all Hollywood was banned. So we never got to see films that much. And... I realized that I walked to the backs of King's College where my husband was, uh, had studied and I rubbed my hands down the bark of the tree and it felt so rough, so raw, so naked. And I thought the trees that were going to have a spring, I didn't think I'd ever have a spring, had come to this barren land so cold and I felt that I'm not going to go anywhere. And it was tough. It was tough. And I know it's hard for younger people to understand, but those who are slightly older will know that time. When there was no technology, you lived within your own world. You didn't see something outside. It was really difficult. And Cambridge, if you're not, an, uh, if you're not a student and you're not an academic, you're nobody. So I was just a wife of an academic. I had no life. But I did see that tree come to life. And I slowly came to life once I learned how to cook. Well, what do you remember eating in those first weeks and months in England? Yeah, my husband's a really poor cook. And that's, that's what I ate. And he can't even make rice. And that's like crazy because he's South Asian and he shouldn't know how to make rice. And I was too scared to tell him because I didn't know how to cook. And I thought, this guy's making me food. If I start saying that the food is not good and he stops, I'm going to starve. So better, and also I thought he might not like me anymore. I was trying to be nice to him. Didn't want to scare him. So it was really a nightmarish situation. How did, how did your aunt step in at first and oh yeah. try and help out? <laughs> my aunt was horrified and she was extremely embarrassed. She kept apologizing to Mushtaq, my husband. I'm so sorry she didn't know how to cook. But she taught me how to cook. And that was really so important. She spent one year in Cambridge with me, my father's sister, who lived in Pakistan, who I had not met. She would then keep telling my mother, God, this girl doesn't know anything. And she's like, so she was giving my mom really bad reports about me. And my mom, of course, was freaking out saying, what are you doing there? You know, how come you can't actually cope? 
I said, what did you teach me and send me? I don't know how to cook anything. So when you went back to India after this difficult time in England where you're homesick and, and lonely and hungry because you don't know how to cook the food that you love, what, what did your mum suggest to you? My first thing was that, you know, is there an option to not go back? And she was like, do you, do you not like your husband? I said, no, I like him very much. I'm starving. <laughs> so, uh, and then, of course, you know, my aunts are not the type to share recipes. I'm sure everyone in the family have these people who have their prized dishes and then they give you the wrong recipe or don't give you half the ingredients. This is across cultures, I know this. You know, the aunts who grab their recipes. But I told them it'll be such a huge scandal when I come back, you know, leaving my husband. Nobody will marry your daughters. Oh God, everybody was teaching me all the recipes after that. <laughs> and I've learned literally everything from anyone that I liked. You know, their kind of star dish of every household, I learned. Because I basically threatened to come back. The thing is, I actually didn't know how to cook. But I spent so much time in the kitchen, I understood the sound of spices and the aroma that's released. I understood the rhythm of when a spoon, we have a goat curry called kosha mangsho in Bengal, and it's that hush, hush, hush. You need to know that noise. You know that that's when all the liquid has reduced. So it was so good to have grown up in a kitchen that I was immersed in the sounds and aromas of cooking, but hadn't done it. And then, so if someone verbally told me that this is how you make it, even though if they didn't, they lied about three ingredients, <laughs> I was smart enough to work out what those were. So it was, it was good. I learned to cook really quickly. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Asma, you were sad and lonely and hungry in England and so went back to India to get your mum and your aunts to all share with you their prized recipes and teach you how to cook. When you returned to your husband in the UK, what did he make of your new skill in the kitchen? He was very, very spooked, I think, in the beginning. He was wondering what had happened to me. But he was ungrateful because then he stopped cooking and he's never cooked again. And I have never asked him to cook again because <laughs> that's fine. That's not his skill. And I was really happy because I could invite people and I made friends. That was the most exciting thing because there was nothing in Cambridge I could do. So I invited people to eat. How did you first start meeting other South Asian women? After being left Cambridge and we moved to London, there was a school opposite my house and a hospital and I could notice the South Asian women who would come with mainly French children. I live in a very French area in London. And they were live-in nannies. And I knew that they were not cooking their own food. And on Sundays, they were all asked to go away for the day. And they had nowhere to go. And I would invite them to my house. And that's how I've connected with many of them. India is a place that's divided by class and caste and religion. Uh, these are not women I would have normally met any time. So did the, you just approach them on the street? Yeah, I, I met them in the school and on the street. And I was like, yeah, come, come to my house. But I remember the first time they came, they all stood. They were like, we can't sit on your chairs. I said, fine, they will all sit on the floor. You know, you can't sit on a chair, I'll sit on the floor and we'll all sit on the floor. Mm. We can't go lower than that. We'll <laughs> sit on the floor. There was a barrier. This was just their own instinct. But this evaporated so quickly over samosas, listening to Bollywood, having chai, weeping and laughing, remembering all our loved ones. And this was the thing that all the, all the walls and barriers that you're taught that you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. And she's this and she's that. Nobody cared because we were all in the same boat. We were all away from home. At the suggestion of a neighbour, you then started cooking for other people at your own home. What did your husband think about this new supper club thing that you were doing? He didn't know. <laughs> I lied. I didn't lie. I just didn't tell him. Was he hiding in the bedroom or how did no, you not no, know? No, no, no. He asked to wait for him to leave. So literally I would tell him, what is your travel plans? Because he's, he's, an, he's a professor in economics. 
He does a lot of research in African countries. He goes to Asia a lot. So he would then go for a length period of time. So that period of time, I used to do supper clubs. So everyone used to keep asking me, isn't your husband leaving? They all knew this. Because <laughs> they were all like, when are you going to come and have biryani? I used to say, I have to wait for him to leave. But so the house used to be really clean when he came back. <laughs> Somehow, miraculously, we didn't break anything in the house. My husband's a nice person. He likes students, but he doesn't like people. He would have freaked out if he knew all these people were in his house, eating over his beautiful carpet. He would have just completely passed out. So how did he find out? Well, eventually he found out. The good thing about my husband is that he's, and that is really a huge benefit. He doesn't helicopter over me and what I'm doing with my life. Also doesn't do social media. Otherwise, he would have picked up everything from Facebook and known what was happening. <laughs> I've seen pictures of his beloved study while people are eating biryani in his study. Oh, my God. But he found out eventually because the kids were very unhappy, especially my younger one, because it just took away the whole Saturday, Sunday. They were trapped in one side of the house. They complained. They complained to my dad. Then he obviously had to come out in the open. And yeah, so I had to stop. I stopped not for him. He didn't even get a chance to tell me anything because the kids had said that they didn't want it. And I realized that I was just not being fair to them. This is their house as well. And I stopped and I moved to a pub after that. To a pub. Who was helping you do the cooking there? I had already gathered a group of women who were nannies from the school, cleaners in the hospital, and they, they would come and work for me on weekends or they managed to take their days off so that they were always there to help me prep. They also got to eat their food because when they were in these families, they never really cooked. They cooked for their kids and they didn't have their own food. So they were all there, but no one was working for me full time. And had any of you cooked in a commercial kitchen before? No, none of us. This is the irony of it all, that what is it that makes you professional, that you can cook for 200 people? You ask any Indian auntie or anyone, you know, any festival, Eid, Diwali, Holi, they are cooking for hundreds of people, all uninvited guests. They all decide to turn up. Our weddings are crazy dramas. So they are used to it. So we are used to producing large quantities of food at a very high level, effortlessly, and with joy. Does that mean this early experience in the pub uh, was without chaos then, asthma? No, it was a lot of chaos. <laughs> I, was, I really made lots of mistakes, was very unsuccessful. I had not understood at that time, and this is 2012, not, this is earlier than that, uh, the idea that you were an Indian cook in Shalwarkami's cooking in a very trendy pub in Soho where everyone looked like, you know, hell's angels, bikers, full of Harley Davidsons outside. They didn't want to eat my food. Uh, there were nights when I sold nothing. And I was so humiliated because I even tried to give free samosa. Uh, and they said no. Who says no to free deep fried stuff? But they didn't want to be obliged to come and then buy a meal in the pub. I was not willing to fail. We really wanted, we had a dream that we would not have a restaurant, but we'd do something. And we moved to this place and we were so, I mean, heartbroken because they really, I mean, I remember one man telling me, just go away, love. I don't want your curry. Go away. And I was like, why are you doing this to me? And it was extremely unsuccessful, financially devastating. But then somebody came uh, she just turned 70. She came to celebrate her birthday. Our greatest food critic, uh, she grew up in India. Someone told her that there's food there that'll take you home. She turned up there, and I didn't recognize her. Why would I recognize a food critic? I've got this little pub. I'm highly unsuccessful food business. Why would anyone want to come and eat? And she wrote the most amazing review. And overnight, I was a big star in London. And this, I don't want your curry love, also yeah, queued yeah, up to I buy bet. my food. Yeah. <laughs> Did you lend him in? No, no, I didn't bill him. I told him. And I told him, don't ever do this because you could have destroyed me. But I'm victorious today. And you don't pay a bill. He cried, but that's fine. You didn't let him pay. That's no. interesting. No, I don't want his money. I think that I don't want money from someone who hurt me. How did your family back in India, what did they make of this switch in your career? Not everybody was happy. My mother was very supportive. My dad was as well. But a lot of my cousins who only cook, they didn't have the chance to go to college. They were young mothers. For them, cooking was domestic servitude, that you were stuck and all you could do was cook. 
So they were horrified because they felt I'd hit the jackpot and married a liberal, very left-wing professor in economics at Cambridge who was like, you know, didn't bother what I was doing with my life. They say, you're mad. You know, why are you doing this? Cooking is all we're allowed to do. But they didn't understand where I was coming from. I really wanted to feed people. You wanted to feed people. Tell me more about that. It wasn't that I enjoyed just the cooking and definitely not the washing. Oh, my God, I hate that. But it gave me great pleasure to feed someone because I know that irrespective of the background they came from in the food that I had made with this group of women, that food took them back to wherever they were. It reminded them of the food of a time when someone they loved cooked for them. Maybe didn't feed them by hand, but it was a time lost forever. And people were consuming food. They were eating, but they were not getting nourished. And I felt that there was this reaction and response when people ate food that I'd made. And I understood that the world needs this somehow. Do you remember the moment when you thought, hmm, maybe I will try opening a restaurant? How did that, how did that leap come to you? Well, I, I never wanted to open a restaurant because you didn't see anyone. My age, my ethnicity, my religion, never having done anything before, like a business, opening a restaurant. This was not my world. And you cannot be what you cannot see. And I didn't think that, but I had to close the, the pub because my son needed help with GCSE, and, which is the exam, so I had to go. I'm Asian mother, of course. You need to go home to make notes for your kid because your kid has not made notes. So I went, I went home, and the landlord of my first restaurant said, you can't, your story doesn't end this way. And I said, yes, it does. And he said, just go. But because he was the first peop- you know, one of the first people who would pay for my food, would tip my staff, I went just because I felt sympathy for him. Turned out he showed me the space and then I realized, oh my God, I want this place. And that's when the dream began that I wanted a restaurant. Where did the name Darjeeling Express come from? It was the name not of the restaurant, but the name of the supper club. And I just remember this journey as a child going from the heat of Bengal into the plains of Darjeeling on a little toy train, which is uh, a steam engine, it's called Darjeeling Express. And for me, that was that moment. I just passed my PhD and I was going to do this food business and I was going to conquer the world. I felt so excited. I named it after that train because I associated that train with freedom, with liberty, with getting out of oppressive heat and into the mountain air. So I just named it that. But then, of course, when I want to open a restaurant, that's what I was registered as. So that's where the that's name where, stayed. That's what it was. How did you sleep the night before it opened, Asma? I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep. I, I sat in the back of the restaurant listening to Sufi music, looking at the moon and the stars, remembering Abu used to always say, just remember how insignificant you are that every day you live one day less. This is your time to make a difference to the whole world. And I sat there the whole night feeling overwhelmed, feeling so insignificant, but at the same time understanding that I think I can change the narrative of how a woman like me is looked at. We are the unloved, the uncelebrated, the unwanted, the unpaid people who cook for family. Everyone wants our roti if it's free. This is why in every home from Afghanistan to Sri Lanka, you will see it's the matriarch of the woman cooking. In every restaurant, it is a man. Because we make it look effortless. Women have done this for generations, every culture. We feed with love. We feed with affection. We are not professional, so no one will pay us. And that's, I realize that this is my moment that I might make it, but I will tell the story of every woman, starting with the women in their graves, who went to their graves thinking they were not skilled. They were great cooks. But that fact that they cooked was just taken by everybody without valuing them for how incredible they were. So it was my salam to them from the graves, to the generations of girls coming after me. Uh, I understood this was about a political moment. Mm. This was never about business or fame or I'm going to become famous. It was this thing that I have now a responsibility to amplify the voices of the women who cook but do not have any value. 
for that. Was it the same group of women of, you know, former nannies and cleaners who were with you in the, in the kitchen as the restaurant opened? Yes, 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 yes. They like to think they own me <laughs> and they like to think that they hired me. So they're very, very powerful. <laughs> they're a very strong collective of women uh, who don't listen to me most of the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, we can't go anywhere. We started this journey. No one's getting off this train. We're all staying <laughs> there. You're on the Darjeeling Express. We've, tried to, we've right, tried to retire two of them who we think they should retire. Uh, they're 68 and 66. And then the average age of the woman cooking in my kitchen is 55 now. So we don't have spring chickens in our kitchen. And, but they're so powerful and so strong. You know, whenever I see restaurant kitchens on TV or, or read about them, they're always depicted as these high-stress, testosterone-fueled kind of agro places. What's the atmosphere like in your kitchen? It's very chilled out. If you sit, we now have an open kitchen. If you sit on the tables near my kitchen, uh, the open kitchen, you will hear the beats of the paratha as they flip it, because we flip it and they roll. and. The spoon, there's a rhythm and a beat and someone will be singing all the time. It's very, very peaceful. I do not understand why cooking has been made into a combat sport by men, tattooed, mainly white, aggressive and rude, and they get primetime television and this is what people think is cooking. I don't understand why there's so much anger and hatred. If you cannot deal with the stress, get the hell out of the kitchen. Because, you know, and I know lots of ashrams where they can go and chill out in the Himalayas and do lots of yoga and deep breathing. Because, I mean, all of us have been through stressful moments. Do you go and beat the person who's next to you for that? But of course, they always pick the woman, you know, a younger man, usually someone of a different sexuality, uh, the dark skinned person. They never go and beat up the owner. And you won't find, you know, a sous chef going and beating up the, the head chef. This schoolboy bullies. This is how crazy it is that it's being justified that this is a stressful place. No, come to my kitchen and you see how stressful it is. It's really chilled out. And we do 200 people. It is not that there's no stress. We're all dying. You know, some table has been sent something which they were allergic to. Someone has been sent the wrong order. We've, someone's check got eaten up somewhere in the system and they've been waiting for an hour. Absolutely shit happens. And we try to resolve it. We don't go around throwing hot pans at each other and beating each other up with suspense. It says so much about the zero communication of mainly white chefs, male chefs, who are not able to, and I'm, the reason why I'm saying about male chefs is that they are the ones who are all powerful entirely in, in England. They are all powerful and they are terrible at communicating. Back when you were a little girl and you, you know, lost your cricket game or something bad had happened at school, your mum would make you the scaled-down biryani. Tell me about the process of making biryani at Darjeeling Express. What's involved and, and how is it received? The biryani at Darjeeling Express is not a scaled-down biryani. It's a massive pot. We do it in the traditional way. So it's either used with goat or lamb and you layer it in many, you know, so, so you have zafran and you've got... Uh, alu Bukhara, which is the prunes of Bukhara in Central Asia. So I make a biryani which is so unique to a royal family and to my family. It's only made in our weddings. When you come to our restaurant and you have this biryani, you won't get this biryani anywhere else. This is really what was made in the palace in my, our families. And it has a story behind why it's made that way. I actually really love making uh, no one in my family right now can make it except me. I have to teach someone else now because I learned it from my old chef, Haji Saab. And Haji Saab taught, taught me how to make biryani because I told him I wanted to make it in England. And he really sat and explained to me. But I have childhood memories of watching it being made. So I knew what I'm looking for. I know the, the aromas that come. And I... So this is a supper club, and so everybody eats at the same time. The, the pot is sealed with dough yes. to, to keep it cooking, so you don't really, it's not like you can check on it. You don't have any idea what's going on inside. Yeah. It's, this is really driven on faith. This is the most frightening thing. You can, you can roast a whole lamb in an oven or a spit roast, but you can check what's happening. With the biryani, you can't because you layer it with the meat, with the potatoes and all the kind of garam masalas, then rice, saffron, and you seal it, and then you just try to in intuitively figure out 
when it's ready, how to, what the heat should be, how you should lower it. Because you can't even hear the sounds of the broth going through. So you don't know where it's come. It's something, touch wood so far. <laughs> I've never got it wrong. I might have one day, but every time it turns out perfect. I think it's just a gift that I have, that I can make biryani like this every time and it's fine. What's the moment like in the restaurant when you open that lid? For me, it's extremely frightening. I'm very close to fainting out of fright because what you, don't, what you can get when you open it is the burnt smell or that the rice is soggy on the top. A lot can go wrong in that biryani. And I pray, I open it, it's always perfect. But the reason why we use the dough is to seal the lid so that none of the aromas escape. So when you break that lid and you open, break off that whole dough ring, it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful, very beautiful. You talked about uh, the way that this restaurant or the whole process of, of cooking food for you has been really much more than just the food. And you've used the platform of Darjeeling Express in a whole lots of different ways, one of which is, is setting up an all-female cafe in Iraq. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I wanted to do something important when I turned 50, and that was actually buying myself a Harley Davidson and going off on my own around Europe. I don't know how to ride a bike, but of course, in my head, I was going to learn. I was looking at biker jackets. Because when you're Indian, you, no one in, in India lets you go off anywhere on your own. You have 10 aunties coming with you everywhere. So I've never done anything on my own, so I thought I'd do this. But I went to an event where I sat next to a woman who was working in the Yazidi camp, and this was one of the last camps that were set up. These the last girls that came down the mountains who had been enslaved uh, by ISIS, sold repeatedly, and that mother's generation had, were all lost. So these were the young girls who managed to survive and come down. And I told her, I want to open a cafe there because they, they were getting a stipend and they had some money. And I just felt, it's my lived experience, that when you cook, you heal. When you feed other people, you suddenly realize that I have some value. And I felt instinctively that these girls probably feel in some ways that it's their fault or they're to blame. And they didn't have their mother. They didn't have an ammu with them. And that, I can't even imagine, that you don't have your mother with you. And you've been through all this pain. Who do you tell this to? So I opened the cafe in northern Iraq, but I had not realized how successful they'd be. They are really, they're making money. They're now got an oven, they're baking cakes, and they make bread for the whole village. They're really, you know, they're really enterprising women. But when I went there and I told them, there was a lot of pushback. But I managed to convince them, and it's been a huge success. <laughs> and you're also a chef advocate with a welfare program in the UK. What does that mean? What's a chef advocate do? So I've always worked for the World Food Program from the time I started my thing. I think that if every chef, when you are making your living from feeding people and charging them, you also have a duty of care to those who cannot eat. And I've, I've worked through Ramadan as well, uh, where people fast from sunrise to sunset, and everybody then can eat a sunset. And I go to gatherings where Muslims are eating, and we talk about what happens to families where sunset, the hunger is relentless. Your thirst cannot be quenched. You know, you have to think of, you can't just feast and not think of hunger. So I did a lot of work trying to raise awareness about not wasting food. So they did, this is, this is very prestigious and a big deal. I got a big certificate and I've been made chef advocate, but really trying to talk about food, but talk about it in a universal way, where food is not just for the privileged, not just for the few. And raising issues about how it is so important for us that if you know your children are fed, that you are fed and you have a roof over your head, you have to think of the refugees. You've got to think of children in war zones, for mothers who put their children in waters when they cannot swim. How hard a choice is that? They're doing this because they are desperate. So I spend a lot of time, I go to refugee camps. So I've just come back from the Syrian refugee camp, uh, which was absolutely incredible because I met all these young Syrian boys and girls who are talking about them going back home to rebuild. 
this idea that a refugee is here forever does work in some context, but not in this. And so I use food as a conversation to talk about politics, to talk about justice and inequality and land rights and water rights. And people who walk on the land of others and cultivate stuff and use their water. This is so wrong. And it's really about justice and food. And that's what I do there. The Russian writer Chekhov is supposed to have requested champagne on his deathbed. And I hope it's a long, long, long way off, Asma. But what will you ask for when the time comes? I think paratha. <laughs> uh, paratha is my favourite thing. And I love it with sugar on top. So the sugar melts. This is the bread. This is the bread, the flat bread. It's one of the things that I realized I missed the most in Cambridge. You know, I, I was suddenly aware that this is the simplest of things. And I didn't even know how to do that. I was useless. And now, uh, yeah, so paratha. I, you wake me up in the middle of nine and say, you want to eat paratha? Yeah. I, <laughs> so, I'm, I, so yes, I think it would be paratha. Paratha. For sure. I think you deserve every big certificate you get and even bigger and, and many more. Please join me in thanking Asma Khan. Chef Asma Khan was my guest and her new cookbook is called Amu, Indian Home Cooking to Nourish Your Soul. I spoke with Asma at the recent Sydney Writers' Festival and it was really wonderful to have the chance to meet some of you at that event too. Thanks this week to the Conversations team, our executive producer Carmel Rooney and producers Nicola Harrison, Maggie Morris and Sinead Lee and to all the audio engineers who make the program possible, particularly when we do outside events like the Sydney Writers' Festival. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.